Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's good to see uh, you all, and it's great to have all of you that are uh, joining us online. Hope you're enjoying the nice, uh, cool breezes uh, in the afternoon, and yeah. Um, so we start uh, a new series, How We Got Here, and uh, I'm excited about this series. Um, this morning, uh, it'll be a little bit different in that uh, there, there is a sizable amount of history here that I want to go through. And I know, and some of you are like me, and you're like, I love history, and I'm so excited, right? And some of you are probably like, oh, but like, I want to win you over this one, right? Uh, but there's an actual, there's a reason uh, for uh, going through some of this history, as you will see, is because there are some really important lessons uh, in it that I, that I want us to see and have a, as a takeaway as we get into our scripture passage. Um, and so as we go through that history here in a little bit, um, we're going to land over in John chapter uh, 13. But let me set up the series itself in this way. And I, I want to just use a little illustration here. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're out on a lovely hike someplace, someplace that you love to go hiking or whatever, but you get lost, okay? Right? So, so just imagine if you got lost someplace, and I want you to, and since, you know, this is all imagination right now, I want you to imagine what would be the best age you could be to, um, to, to find your way out of, of being lost. What, what is the best age if someone gets lost, right? So think about that for a moment here, right? What would the best age be? How many of you think, like, I don't know, like, like, like maybe in your 50s would be like your most likely, like research would show, okay, not, people just like, no, I'm tired. I just sit down and just hope I get rescued. If not, here I come, Jesus, right? Okay, um, so let's go the other direction. How many of you think, like, as a teenager, that would be the best bet? Okay, okay, a few of you, like three of you. Okay, how about like your 30s? Anyone in your 30s? Okay, there we go. 40s? 20s? Most of you are goners. Um, how many of you thought, how about six or younger? Yeah, one of you. Yes, yeah, because he heard the sermon earlier. Yeah. So research shows one of the, the demographic ages that is most likely to survive uh, out in the wilderness if they get uh, lost for any reason are those six and under. And the first time I read this, I was like, what? That makes no sense, right? You just think they like, like no, like the, the, they would be part of the most at risk uh, group here. But there's actually some reasons why uh, in this that, that I think are interesting, uh, but you'll see how this uh, pertains in all this. Um, there's a mental phenomenon that goes on when we get lost. And this actually applies not just when we get lost when we're out hiking. Um, it applies somewhat even when we have that sense of being lost um, over anything, right? We, we can have that sense of being lost relationally. You can have that sense of being lost in the middle of a big city. You, right, we struggle through this. And there's a couple of things that come out when we get lost. And the first one uh, is this. When we first, when that inner voice or that inner feeling first goes, hey, do we know where we are? Because it feels like maybe we're a little lost. Lots and lots of people go, I don't like that thought, so I'm going to ignore that thought. 
right? And so you have people that get lost and there's actually indicators early on when it would be easier to make your way back, when, when the chances of not getting further lost or recovering are really high, that we tend to ignore it because we hate the feeling or the insecurity of being lost. And so we have this way of ignoring it. The other thing that occurs um, is that when, it, when that little voice finally breaks through, a lot of times our first reaction is to press on. I just like, so like if you're hiking out there and you're like, where'd the trail go? I don't, I'm, I'm feeling, I don't know, I got it, I, I got it. Because you don't like that feeling. And so the average person presses on even harder because they think this is the way out of this situation I'm in right now and I don't like it. So I'm gonna press on. But it turns out that blindly pressing on in the wrong direction is a bad technique. Right? So it's just so, remember that if you're out hiking, right? Um, this thing of if you don't, if you're lost and you don't know where you are and you hurry up, you're just hurrying up oftentimes to just get more lost, right? It's not a great technique. And yet that's what so many do. And at first you would think, boy, pressing on seems like that would be a great survival technique. And what survival experts will say is, it is if, if, and here's the big if, if when you're lost, you will pause, stop, and ask yourself the question, um, how did I get here? How did I get here? Like just pausing to think through the steps that brought you there. Oftentimes when people just stop, and instead of just pressing on forward, actually stop and go, okay, what, what brought me here? Maybe I, and, in, and they will oftentimes figure out what they need to do to get out of that situation. And that's when pressing on actually becomes very, very helpful. Um, so now back to those six-year-olds. You know what the average six-year-old does when they get that feeling of lost? They sit down. <laughs> they just, they're out hiking and they get lost or they wander out of their yard and all of a sudden they're like, I don't know where I am. And they just sit down. If they're tired, they'll crawl under a tree and take a nap and they conserve their energy. They don't get more lost. They, like there's this uncanny thing. And when you study this, it's shocking the number of kids in that, uh, that age range. I think it's like three to six, um, how often they will survive oftentimes for days and days and days when some of these other groups uh, don't last that long because they've worn themselves out. They've just, so here's the lesson in this, right? Uh, because this applies to more than just hiking, right? There's a life lesson here in this. And it's that, do we stop and pause at different moments? Like when we feel a little lost, do we know how to pause and just say, how did I get here? Because I bet for some of you, you're looking at this right now and you're going, man, two years ago, I, like, I felt like I knew where I was going and what life was about. And I, I, I had that sense of, of, you know, where in my direction. And right now, it just feels like so much is up in the air, right? Or maybe for some of you, it's been a struggle with a career or maybe relationship or whatever. And you just, you have that sense of like, feel lost. And you know, this can happen with churches too. I, this like, this can happen with anything. That it's that, like, and, and you get in that space where it's like, we've got to press on, we've just got to press on. We've, we've, we've got to just fight forward. And that's great if, if you're fighting forward, if you're pressing on forward in the right direction. 
And I bring all of this up because this fall, um, as we uh, kind of ramp up into our new ministry season and everything, one of the things we want to do is we want to walk out um, our mission. Um, and we've been spending a lot of time on this and have kind of refreshed the language to this and have been um, spending a lot of time praying about it and getting organized around it. But we thought it'd be really important that we also spend some time pausing and asking, how did we get here? Before we press on and before we come together as a church and press on, we should ask the question, how did we get here? So over the next four weeks, we want to ask that question, how did we get here? And some different time spans. We want to do everything from like, let's look at the last 150 years. Let's look at the last 20 years, us as a church. Let's look at the last 50 years. But also, let's look at the last two millennia. And that's actually what I want to do this morning because we're a part of the church that Jesus Christ started. We, we are his church. And there's like this 2,000 year history. And there's something important about it to pause and say, like, how did we get here? Because maybe there's some things that we can learn and draw off of uh, this, uh, the, here this morning. So as we think about this, so, I'm, so, we're, we're good. so here's where I want to walk through a little bit of history here this morning. I want you to think about um, the church, not just this church, but the, ch the church with a capital C. And, and how did the church go about advancing the cause of Christ? Because when we unfold our mission um, here in August, we want to talk about, like, we want to advance the cause of Christ. What is Christ calling us to do as a church? How do we advance that? Because that's a question the church has been asking for some 2,000 years. So here's what I want to do. Let's go back, right? I want you to think back in time, way, way back in time. In fact, um, I, want, I want us to go all the way back to 54 AD. And when you think about 54 AD, remember, Jesus probably started his ministry around 30 AD. Um, he uh, dies and is resurrected like somewhere around 33 AD. So this is, this is when the church is brand new, okay? 54 AD. And the reason I want us to go back to 54 AD is because there is a guy by the name of Nero who becomes the emperor of Rome. And he becomes the emperor of Rome. He's like 16 years old, and he is trying to consolidate his power. He's this young guy, and he feels all the tension and everything. And he looks at uh, Christians, and he understands that there's like this weird religious thing with these Christians, and he understands like they kind of came out of Judaism or whatever. But in trying to consolidate his power, and, and the little bit that he understands, he decides like— um, making them a kind of scapegoat for some things will actually help me consolidate my power. Um, in fact, he reaches the point where he wants to just stamp out Christianity. And, and one of the hardest uh, times in history where Christians were persecuted starts with Nero in 54 uh, AD. And he, he grabs power and seeks to maintain control through just pure power, trying to create fear. He does things like he ties Christians up uh, sews them up in animal skins and like throws them into the Colosseum and in other things where, uh, where wild animals like uh, rip them apart. Does this for like entertainment, but does it because he's trying to show I've got the power, you don't. And he's trying to stamp out Christianity. One of the things he's probably most famous for uh, is that he would take Christians and tie them to poles and light them on fire. Um, that if they would not recant, like, like he would burn them to death on a pole. And uh, he was known for uh, putting up lots of these poles like around his, uh, 
his palace and actually light it up at night. Sometimes on roadways he would do this. And you would think at this point, 54 AD, the church has no power, right? The church, like it's just, it's in its infancy. You would think this would just squash the church out of existence. And by the way, this thing of grabbing power and maintaining control, Nero wasn't the first uh, emperor to use this. This was a technique that they used and they, and they used it because it worked. But a funny thing happened. It didn't work on the early church. In fact, the early church thrived. As fast as he could kill Christians, as fast as he could make it illegal, as fast as he could do anything, the church kept on growing in amazing, amazing ways. In fact, near the end of his reign, he ends up losing control, flees out of the desert, realizes there's no hope, actually kills himself. And by this time now, Christianity has multiplied many times over uh, in this. His plan was like, grab power and maintain control. And the church had no power, and yet it seemed so powerful at the time. Now, let's fast forward a little bit more. Um, so I want to talk about another emperor. So let's fast forward to 306 AD. In 306 AD, there's another man who comes to power. Uh, it is Constantine, and he becomes the emperor of Rome as well. But under Constantine, something happens that no one would have ever guessed. In fact, it is like the unimaginable thing, right? It is Constantine becomes a Christian, right? Before this time, people would have thought of Roman emperors and be like, there's no, like, there's no way an, uh, a Roman emperor would ever become a Christian, yet Constantine becomes a Christian. And this opens up the Christian church to, like, uh, possibilities that it never had before. Like, uh, it becomes a really good time in the sense that this persecution begins to subside. But there's also something else with it that we need to understand. That when Constantine becomes the emperor and he becomes a Christian, um, in, I think it was like 312 AD, Christianity is decriminalized. He actually makes Christianity like the official religion of the empire. And all of a sudden, the church has a kind of power and influence it never had before. And you'd think this would be great. But there's some interesting things with it. You know, there were conflicts within the church, but that's nothing new there. There were conflicts. The, the day that Jesus picked disciple number two, right, there was conflicts in the church, right? Because you have two people, you got conflicts, right? Um, but there were, I'll give you an example. Around 320, there was this conflict uh, with what was known as the Berber uh, Christians out of North Africa. And through this conflict, they're trying to work this out, and they have all of these discussions, and they can't figure it out. Only one group of these Christians has a little bit more, like, political power than the other group. And they use it to actually create laws to force things the way they want them to, right? Because they weren't getting anywhere trying to work forward and work it out. And so they literally make laws and outlaw what the other Christians were doing. How do you think those other Christians responded? Oh, there's a law now, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm with you now. No. They, they're like, why'd you do that? And you haven't changed our beliefs. And so they stick to their beliefs in this. So then this other group actually enact those laws. They actually have them arrested. They begin persecuting them. And what you have somewhere in the 320s, probably for the first time 
in Christian history, you have Christian martyrs that are killed by other Christians. Thousands of Christians had been killed before this, but never by other Christians for something they believed, uh, an issue of their faith. And it's like, how did they get there? Like, they got lost. Like, where, like, where, where, where do you look in the teachings of Christ and go, the way we work this out is we grab power and maintain control to the point that we would take the life of another Christian over an issue of faith. But that's how lost they got. It's like they just missed something. And it worked itself into the church in, in a way that it like kept bubbling up. And it, and, it, and it kept, there was this residue that just stayed in. And, it, and until finally, and now I want to fast forward even further into the 1500s. Because it, in the 1500s is where it really starts to become abused. And the church in the West is still one single church uh, at this time. But the abuses have become terrible. And there is this little monk by the name of Martin Luther in the early 1500s that sees all of this. And he's like, this is wrong. What the church is doing, this is not how this is supposed to work. And so he begins writing and is hoping to actually create this transformation within the church itself. That was his vision. His vision was never to create a split and like create two different churches or denominations. Like the idea of denominations wasn't even in anybody's mind uh, at this point. But that's what begins to happen as this schism forms and as they, they just, they keep on uh, fighting in the same. In fact, Martin Luther would be turning over in his grave to think that there were a group of Christians that went on to then continue dividing and dividing and dividing until we now have, I think it's like uh, 25,000 some different denominations just in the U.S. And there's probably over 43,000 different uh, Protestant denominations across the world. Like there's this thing, it's like, what ha that was never his plan. But there's another guy that comes right on the heels of him. And, and here's the story that I want to share with you that where there's something that really gets illustrated here. And this occurs uh, in the 1550s. And his name is John Calvin. And John Calvin is this Frenchman, and he's a lawyer. Um, and uh, he also is studying theology, and he's very Catholic. Like, he, he, is on this, like, like he is on the side of where the Catholic Church is. But as he continues to study uh, theology in Paris, he starts reading and studying some of the stuff that Luther and others were writing. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know what? I think they've got this right and he becomes a Protestant, right? This is where we get all the Protestants is out of this division that occurs in the early 1500s. Um, but the Catholic Church is like, okay, you're in trouble, right? So he flees France because that was controlled by the Catholic Church. And he goes and lives in Geneva, Switzerland. And in Geneva, he does an interesting thing there. He, he calls out the Catholic Church for how they're using power and control and doing all these things. But he says, the reason that's a bad thing is because they're wrong theologically. But he said, you know what we need? We need to set up a city and a state that would actually use the right biblical principles and it would come to control all that would have happen in the social and civic world in there. And he said, it would be good for us to use power 
and maintain control because we're right. They're wrong, and so it's bad, but we're right. And, and he literally begins to walk this out. And then something interesting happens. There's, a, there's another, and I know I'm giving you a lot of names here, but there's a guy by the uh, name of Michael uh, Servetus. And Servetus is a, a Spaniard and a doctor. And he begins writing on these theological things, disagreeing with the Catholic Church, but also disagreeing with Calvin. And he and Calvin get into this dialogue about theological things. They don't agree, and they're each trying to convince the other of these uh, different things. Finally, the Catholic Church looks at Civitas and says, you're a heretic, and we're coming after you like we came after Calvin. And so Civitas flees Spain, and he shows up in Geneva. In fact, one Sunday morning, he shows up at Calvin's church, sitting there, and someone recognizes him and goes, hey, that's that Civitas guy. And, and Calvin finds out about it, actually has the magistrates in Geneva apprehend him. And he says, we got to work out this difference. And Savitas says, this is what I believe. And Calvin says, but this is what I believe. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. And they can't work it out. And in that moment, Calvin, to protect what he feels like needs to happen in Geneva and other spiritual leaders at the same place say, we have to prosecute it. This is not okay. We're going to look weak to other territories. And this, if we let him teach these things, it will upset the social dynamic that we're trying to create here. And so they put him on trial for his theology and what he believed. They convicted him. And they executed him by tying him to a pole and burning him to death. And, and it's like, how, how did they get so lost that, that they would look at a Christian brother and say, I, just because I don't agree with your theology, I think I have the right to actually use Nero as a model for how to treat you. See, they got lost, not because they were right or wrong on their points of theology, they got lost because they grabbed power and tried to maintain control. That's what got them lost. And you know, at this point, this was, this was the opportunity as this was going on for that early Protestant church to get this right. This was their moment to say, There's a, we've watched what's happened for over a thousand years of grabbing power and maintaining control that never ended up in a good place. Every, every time the church exercised that again and again through history, like it doesn't end up in a good place. But instead of doing that, they actually just leveraged it more. And, and, the, and this is what we're deeply a part of, because we're a Protestant church. Our history goes back to a history where those early Protestants, some of the darkest days of our heritage are right, right here, where for a couple centuries, Protestants would divide and then execute or kill other Protestants that they did not agree with at a theological level and killed each other over things that we would look at now and go like, oh my gosh, you are, you're splitting hairs over the silliest things. But that's where it goes when you grab power and try and maintain control. 
And, it, and it's, it's the residue of it continued within the tradition of Protestantism. It, it's actually come to this continent in many ways. Um, just real quickly, like in the mid-1600s, there were groups of Protestants that were fleeing Europe because they were being persecuted by other Protestants. They came here to gain religious freedom. Like the Puritans and the, the Friends Church, or we would know them as the Quakers. And in the 1650s, there was uh, the Quakers and the Puritans got into this argument and were trying to work things out between, of all things, over um, communion, the role of women, and how to do baptisms. They got into a fight over this, and in the end, one group had more power than the other group, and they used that power, it was the Puritans, and this occurred in Boston. They used their power to actually create laws against Quakers sharing the gospel or trying to start churches. And of course, they're Christians, and they're like, we're not gonna hold back from sharing the gospel or starting churches. And they were arrested, and I think it was in uh, 1659. We had Christian brothers and sisters that put other Christian brothers and sisters on trial, condemned them to death, and hung them to death. It started off with two men and a woman for sharing the gospel. How do you get lost like this? I think part of it is you just, like, you didn't pause, and you didn't say, how did we get here? How did we get to this? And I think that can happen today. It can happen in all these different ways. And so what I want to do, I want us to think about this, because we, we feel this still today at different moments, and I think Jesus actually set the church up with a kind of strategy that is actually good and beautiful. So this is where I want to go back to Scripture. So let's go back, right? Turn to, in your Bibles to John chapter 13, and I want to look at something Jesus said. And this is um, actually going back to like uh, 33 AD, okay? This is, this is occurring right before Jesus uh, is going to be arrested. This story occurs in the upper room. Jesus knows he's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And this movement, this cause that he has that he believes in so deeply, this is the group that he's going to hand it off to, right? There's this group of followers and he's saying, okay, you're the ones, you're the ones. And it's like, this is his moment to, to say, okay, here's the strategy for this. And I think this is exactly what he does. So uh, let's look at, uh, at this. Um, and we're just going to break down verse 34 here. He says this, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, I want you to picture all of his followers for a moment, and they're like, a new command. Okay, love one another. He's saying, Jesus, you've been talking about love for like, since you started this thing. Like, it's just been love, 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 like, oh my gosh, Jesus. What's like, what's so new about this? It's what he says next, that if we can understand it in context, is earth-shatteringly new. And I really mean that, right? So look at what he says uh, next. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Stop right there. As I have loved you. Three things that I, there's three things that I want to uh, pull out of this uh, passage. Um, and the first one comes out of this, as I have loved you. First point, this is really personal, right? He's taught about love before. 
right? He's taught about, like, greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor, right? I want you to go know your, uh, love your neighbor. Even if I don't know who your neighbor is, go love your neighbor, right? In other words, what he's teaching there is you can't claim to love God and hate and hurt people, right? That's like love 101. And then he goes on and he has other things about love, right? He teaches, um, here's how I want you to love. Love other people by treating them the way you want to be treated. And that was revolutionary. When Jesus is teaching, that was new. Like, like actually treat people like you don't get to just have like a really low standard of love. You know, I love you in the Lord. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll speak the truth in love, right? We've all had those conversations, right? He's saying, no, 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 no. Treat people the way you want to be treated. But here he goes a big step beyond that. Love other people the way I have loved them, the way I have loved you. This is really personal, right? This is, I want you to think about like, how has Jesus loved you? Imagine Jesus in that upper room. Like he could go around, he could look at the different, like he could look at Peter and say, Peter, remember when your family got the news that your mother-in-law was dying? Do you remember the heartbreak and the sorrow? Do you remember that moment? And you remember when I saw the tears in your eye and I saw the hurt, I traveled with you back to their home. I dropped everything and I saved her life because I loved her and I loved you. Can you imagine Peter going, you know what, Jesus, no matter what else you do, you, you, you cared for me. See, this is personal. Imagine him looking at Nathaniel and saying, Nathaniel, remember when we first met, right? In fact, the way we first met is when you first heard about me, you started mocking me. Like, what good, what, nothing good's ever come from Galilee, you know, from Nazareth, right? You, you know, you're saying, Jesus from Nazareth? Like, you mocked me. But remember, I wasn't like, I came at you with like, oh, well, you don't get to belong to the club now, you know, missed your chance, right? Or I didn't strike you down. I didn't use my power and like, you know, like, what happened? I won you over. I loved you. I explained you. I, I let your questions be your questions. Remember that? And you can just see Nathaniel just going, oh my gosh. Like, I know what it's like not to just think about God's love in general. I know what it's like to feel God's love personally. Or Matthew, like Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He was like, the Jews hated him. There was no rabbi that would spend time with Matthew. Like they would have all looked at Matthew as like, you, are, you have betrayed your people, right? And Jesus is like, do you remember Matthew? When I saw you, what did I say? And Matthew would be like, you invited me to follow you. And then you threw a party at my house and you let me invite my friend. Like, like you loved me, see? And I just, like what Jesus is doing, like don't miss this. He is describing a love that, that at its core brings us back to this place. And the thing I would like remind all of us in this moment is like, What's a moment that you experienced the love of Jesus in some profound way? Was it like, maybe it was a moment of great loss, like just heartbreak. Ever have a moment of deep heartbreak and experience Jesus 
maybe even in a mystical or supernatural way that comforted you. And you look back at that moment and you just say, like Jesus became so real because I could, he, I knew he cared about me. Ever have a moment like that? Maybe it was a moment and you just go, that was my moment of my greatest failure. I mean, I felt like my life was over. No coming back from this. And you experienced a kind of grace that just lifted you up and filled you with a kind of beauty and wonder. And you got to see who you were in Jesus, maybe in the richest way you ever have in your life. Remember that? So what Jesus is saying here is, the way I personally have loved you, I want you to tap into that. Do you see how this is new? Rabbis didn't talk this way. Religious leaders didn't talk this. Nobody talked this way. But Jesus did. Because he's got a strategy to this, right? Because this is about how do we carry forward his cause, like his purposes in this. He goes on. Um, in verse uh, 34, again, he says this thing. He says, as I, as I, like there is a way that I do this, as I love. Um, and, and here's the, the point in this that, <clears throat> and I'll explain a little bit more in this. We don't advance the cause of Christ through uh, power and control. And you know why? Because that's not how Jesus advanced his cause when he was here on this planet. His way wasn't through power and control. Uh, uh, case in point, that very night that he says this, uh, he, lets, he lets them all know, there's one of you that's going to betray me. Like Jesus knows, doesn't give the name away yet, but he knows it's going to be Judas, right? Um, he's had three years to change Judas's heart. He's had three years to convince Judas, like, be with me, have, have faith in me, stick with me through this thing. Judas won't do it, right? Like, it's like three years. If, if ever Judas's heart was going to be won over, it probably been won over. And in that moment, it would any of us had faulted Jesus if Jesus would have said, okay, so I tried the whole be nice, love you, win your heart over. Didn't work, right? Guys, bar the door. Judas doesn't get to go anywhere, right? It's like, he could have done something supernatural in that moment that would have forced it. He could have done all kinds of things. But what he doesn't do is use power or try to maintain control over Judas. He lets him walk out the door. Because his way isn't about grabbing power and maintaining control. It's not what he does, right? Third thing, look at the last sentence in verse 34. He says this. He says this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And here it is again. If you love one another. Like, I, what I love about this last sentence here is he, he's expanding this. And he's giving us the strategy. Here, here, and here's the point. Here's the third takeaway from this. We win hearts through love. When we win hearts through love, we advance the cause of Christ. When you win a heart, you have moved mountains. When you win a heart, right, you can't make laws that will undo that, right? Like that's, and what he's saying is, this is how this works. I mean, look at how he puts this, right? This is his strategy, right? Uh, this is a strategy that goes beyond just reaching the people in that room. This is a strategy that goes beyond just reaching 
his followers that he already has that are maybe scattered all throughout Jerusalem. He's talking about, what does he say? Um, all men, by this all men will know. Here's my strategy. When they watch you love one another, when they watch you love other people, they're going to look at that and they're going to go, you know what? That group, when I see them the way they treat each other, that tells me they're actually connected to the real God of the universe. Like, he's just saying, this is how it works. If you want people to go, they, that church, those people, that family, they're like, they're connected to the real God. The way that happens is he's saying is not because we grab power or control because we force something. It is because of the way we love starting with one another. And we love one another in a way that is sourced and comes out of our own experience with Jesus. Moments in heart, right? See, this is, I love this. It's just like moments where you experience the love of Jesus in a moment of heartbreak. Like, use that and we meet other people in their heartbreak. We love them in their point of heartbreak. People that have struggled with sin and they're trying to overcome it and they're filled with, you know, with guilt or shame. Like we meet them like with grace and affection and hope and lift them up the way we were met in that. And right when that happens, what Jesus is saying is, you'll change a heart. And you change a heart, you, like you'll, you become powerful in ways that this world doesn't understand. Just ask Nero. Ask Nero how it all worked out, right? He tried to squash the church. The church flourishes. And like 15 years later, he's out in the desert taking his own life. And friends, this is our way. Like, I want us to look back. Before we start talking about our mission and how we're going to press forward as a church, I want us to come back and pause and say, okay, how did we get to this place? I'm going to look back, and I know how we got started. This was our strategy. When we grab power, we get lost. And I don't say that because like, you know, it's my theory. I say that because there is 2,000 years of history where anytime the church grabs power and maintains control, it gets lost. But when we love, we win hearts. And when we win hearts, the church is an unstoppable force. You know, we see examples of this even today. Um, it's interesting, at the end of World War II, um, Russia and China both closed their doors to Christians. Uh, like, I mean, they slammed the door shut. They kicked out all foreigners who were Christians. Um, uh, they made Christianity illegal. They confiscated property. They uh, persecuted Christian leaders. Um, they, and from the West's vantage, uh, it just seemed like the church was being squashed out to nothing in China and Russia. And it seemed kind of hopeless. And maybe you remember this, but like, if you go all the way back to the 70s, uh, China, late 70s, China started to open up again. They started to relax all their rules and laws, and all of a sudden we got to kind of peek in. And the church in the West was absolutely shocked to find out that the church in China was thriving. In fact, it had gone from like uh, 5 million Christians to like 50-some million Christians. It was alive and doing well because, right, they had no power. 
but they had love, right? They were able to advance the cause of Christ. Uh, when the Iron Curtain fell, same thing. Like the Iron Curtain fell and all of a sudden there were all of these countries like the Ukraine. And it was just like, oh my gosh, what's, what's happened? All of a sudden these countries, when they came out from underneath the Iron Curtain, what we discovered was like the church, like they were there were groups of Christians that like were forming house churches and, and they were finding ways to do, like it was thriving. In fact, the senior pastor before me, Roger Barrier, um, not long after that, he actually traveled over to the Ukraine to train pastors that weren't even Christians yet. Some of them weren't even born when uh, Ukraine got sucked in underneath the Iron Curtain and got cut off from the rest of the world. And he got to go over there and help train and teach these new pastors that had these flocks and the things that they were doing. It was just that he came back. He's like, it's amazing, like what God has been doing in this. And I say all of this to say, in moments where it just feels like, wow, like this feels discouraging or something. And I think sometimes it's easy for us right now to pause and look at a two-year horizon and go, oh gosh. But what I want to say is, let's not look at a two-year horizon. Let's start with like a 2,000-year horizon. And when we look at a 2,000-year horizon, there's a lot of clarity in it, right? We get to see what Jesus did when he sent us off. We get to see the church at its moments when it was following what Christ was saying and moments when it was trying to grab power and maintain control. And there's such a stark difference. So as we move forward as a church, let's not forget how Jesus started us off. And you know what? Let me say this too. At a personal level, whenever we're at a moment where it just feels like, man, life is coming against me or I'm confused or I'm hurting. I don't, like, in moments where you feel powerless, I promise you, you're not. You're not. You may be powerless by the standards of this world, but you are dearly loved by Jesus Christ. And you have more power than you realize because he's with you. That's what we belong to, right? And I just think in our personal lives and as a church, as we just take a deep breath and go, you know what? I don't have to have power the way the world thinks it has to have power because I have Jesus. And it just clears our mind. And I think when you rest in that, you'll find that the trail is maybe right there in front of you in ways you did not see. And you can press forward. Why don't you stand? I'm going to close this here in a moment. And as I do, let me just say, um, if you're a guest here this morning, it was so good having you here this morning and visiting with us and being our guest. I'm going to be hanging out right down here. I would love to shake your hand. Or maybe there's some of you who have been coming for a little while and we've just never had a chance to meet or whatever. I'd love to meet you as well this uh, morning. Let me pray and we'll be uh, dismissed. Father, we're excited about the future. And as much as we think about like where we've come from, Remind us again and again of the beauty of what it means to find our strength in you and find our way that is your way. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.